Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have uh, left in the comments section of my Q&A videos. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show, and thank you for inviting me into your home again this week to answer some of your questions. Uh, this is always, this is just the most fun show. And, uh, and we are uh, well along on so many questions now, uh, probably a couple thousand, I don't know. Anyway, so um, on my Critical Clips channel, I think I'm now approaching 800 or something video clips just posted there over the last, I think, couple, uh, well, a couple years, I guess, that Critical Clips has been going because I've been posting every day, Monday through Friday on that channel. And I encourage you to subscribe there as well as here to this main channel. And you can use those clips, by the way, to send out to people if they're looking for information, uh, you know, who's Chris Shelton? What's this channel about? How could I be of assistance to them? How can I help educate them? How can I help inform them? Send them some clips from that channel, and uh, then hopefully that will uh, entice them to the main channel here, and they can uh, discover the wealth of information about destructive cults and high control groups and coercive control that uh, that exists here, uh, and when will continue to be produced. So. Uh, anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there. And of course, also uh, remind everybody when you subscribe to the channel here, uh, click that little bell notification as well, because that way you get notified when new content goes up. Uh, so far, it's been, um, you know, pretty regular Friday, Saturday, Sunday type content is pretty much the schedule now. And I will be updating um, the graphics and, and, and schedule and information and stuff like that on my channel. Uh, soon. I'm still waiting uh, with bated breath. I mean, literally any day now uh, to pull the trigger on uh, on all of that because um, I on the graduation completion of my master's program. I'm really just kind of waiting and it's been waiting and waiting and waiting and it's getting a little annoying, but uh, it is what it is. So um, anyway, so that's that's happening there. And also, um, I wanted to say that um, there will be social media happening again on that line, too. I will be getting back onto uh, certain social media platforms just to get and promote my work out there, not to rant and rave as an individual on social media. I'm not going to go that route again, uh, but I am going to try to put some... Um, you know, my content out there and links about uh, advice and direction and help that people might need or could use uh, for, you know, abusive situations, coercive controlling type situations. So anyway, so you should uh, watch for that. I'll be um, appearing on Twitter and Facebook again, and we'll figure out other other avenues. So all that being said, that kind of stuff is moving forward. Uh, but let's go ahead now and get on with your questions. Mark P. As I was reading the Underground Bunker today, there was a bit about advanced orgs and St. Hill orgs. This reminded me of a question that I have had for a long time and never had an answer. Why have these two types of orgs been housed together, AOSH, internationally, but in separate buildings in the United States? I guess since Big Blue, they have been on the same campus, but still separate. All right, Mark, so this is actually a little bit of Scientology um, history and information 
uh, about uh, the structure and kind of layout of, of Hubbard's intention for this place called Big Blue or the PAC base or Pacifica Area Command uh, in Los Angeles, the Big Blue buildings with the big Scientology sign. That is the PAC base. And that base was purchased and renovated in the 1970s for Scientology's use. And L. Ron Hubbard had a very unique and specific vision for uh, that street. It used to be uh, Berendo, or I think it was uh, on Berendo, anyway. And they renamed it to L. Ron Hubbard Way um, uh, while I work there. And we uh, made it into a walking street brick Pave Street. That was that was uh, all work that was done while I was working there in the Sea Org, and uh, I think that was in the '90s. Anyway, that base has its um, has a very specific purpose, and that is the the idea was that the entire bridge to total freedom, all the way up to the level before you know, all the way up to the place you can get to before you'd have to go off to Clearwater in Florida. Um, you could walk in on one end of that street where the Los Angeles Church of Scientology, the Los Angeles Org is at one end of the street, go in that building as a nobody, has no, no experience with Scientology at all, go through the services of the LA Org, right, which is a lower class five level church, so it can take you up to the level of clear, and it can train you as, a, as, a, on a, as an auditor up to the level of class five. And if these things are, are, you know, if these terms seem archaic and cryptic, there's a video I have put together. There's a playlist I've put together on my channel called The Basics of Scientology. And in that playlist is a video that breaks down the entire Scientology bridge to total freedom, the, the, all the services and the, what's called the grade chart in Scientology. And that's the path. That's, that's the road that all Scientologists follow. So, um, so Hubbard tried to, with this street, with, with L. Ron Hubbard Way, he tried to physically put the bridge there that you would literally physically walk. So you walk into LA Org, you do your introductory stuff, your beginning Scientology stuff, your your um, you start getting into you know into more advanced stuff uh, up to a certain level. Then you go to when you finish there, or the idea was that you go clear and you get some auditor training, and then you go to the American Saint Hill organization, which is literally connected to LA Org. You can walk from one to the next. Or you can walk down the street, go from one building to the other. And the American St. Hill organization was the organization that, uh, historically speaking, and this has all kind of been muddied up and changed, but historically, St. Hills uh, do two things. They train class six auditors. They deliver what's called the St. Hill Special Briefing Course, which is a it's a tremendously long, big, long course. Full time, it would take you about a year. It's the biggest course in Scientology, and it covers the chronological development of all of Dianetics and Scientology. So that's a pretty big, beefy thing. St. Hill organizations exist to deliver that course. They also exist to sort of oversee delivery sort of from a technical seniority point of view because classically speaking, St. Hill organizations are Sea Org. They're manned by Sea Org members, Sea Organization members. LA Org and the other Class 5 orgs used to be in, you know, manned by staff members, not Sea Org members, people who only sign up for two and a half or five years. So, okay, so you have now... 
now it's been, like I said, I actually, let me, let me talk about all the changes after this. So you go to the St. Hill and you do the St. Hill special briefing course. You also do what's called OT preparations. So you go clear at the LA org, but you got to, you want to go on to the OT levels next, but there's this little interim step called OT preps. And uh, the OT preparation step is what you could do at the St. Hill. Uh, there was a lot of um, contention about whether the OT eligibility step, which comes after OT preparations, could also be done at a St. Hill. Technically, it could, but it always went a little back and forth. It was a little political as to which organization was delivering that. But after you're done with the OT preps and maybe the eligibility at St. Hill, you then cross the street and you've gone physically from LA Org to St. Hill to the Advanced Organization of Los Angeles, AOLA. And that organization exists to only do pretty much one thing, deliver OT levels one through five. And, uh, of course, that's also where you would do your solo auditor course. That's the training that the advanced organization delivers. So, so you finish up at St. Hill, and now you're ready to go do the OT levels or be an OT auditor, but you have to learn how to audit yourself, how to do what's called solo auditing. So you do that course at the advanced organization. They have a great big course room, and that's pretty much what they focus on. The um, the advanced organization also classically would deliver what's called the class eight course. So that's an auditor training level. It's in a very advanced one. You have to already be OT3 just to do that course. So again, you do the lower level auditor training at LA Org. You walk up to the St. Hill and you do the big St. Hill special briefing course and you walk across the street and you can do the class eight course. So either way, both the auditing and the training side, you are physically, you know, walking down that street and walking across the bridge. Okay, so that's why the pack base was set up classically the way that it was. That was Hubbard's direct written intention for the pack base. And when I worked there, um, part of my job was to try to implement this and enforce this kind of thing. But we would constantly run into inter-org competition. And because uh, some of the services overlap, uh, there are especially between the LA organization and the St. Hill. A lot of services because St. Hills and theoretically AOLA as well can and are authorized to deliver lower services than those mainline services. So a St. Hill org could deliver all the services that the LA org delivers, including lower level auditing, lower level auditor training. And after they had uh, the first time that this really, really started getting messed with, was uh, Miscavige a few years ago, right? Started started messing with this whole plan. He turned LA Org into a Sea Org org. So it's manned by Sea Org members. That is very unusual. Class five lower level orgs are generally manned up by staff members, but not in PAC. So he also then combined the St. Hill organizations because there was a day and a night organization. They had two shifts. He crunched all that together. So now it's just the American St. Hill. There's no day and, and, and evening. Uh, 
And um, also the same was done with the LA organization. It used to be that there was a day and an evening weekend shift. With Sea Org, that's all combined because Sea Org members don't take breaks and they don't have shifts. They work all the time. So um, that kind of simplified things, but it also messed entirely with the entire theory of how Scientology organizations are put together. Because you're supposed to have a day shift for your, you know, full-time out-of-town people or people who don't have jobs or have unusual work schedules. They can come in during the day, whereas your working professionals will come in during the evenings or during the weekends. And uh, you would try to encourage those different classes of public people, right? They wouldn't necessarily overlap a lot theoretically, but in the you know, fight and struggle for income and service and delivery and got to get those stats up, orgs will rip each other off all the time. And then that frequently did through the years. And this was always a point of contention. But um, when the Sea Org orgs start ripping off the class five org public and the Scientologists, in other words, and start appealing to them to come to the St. Hill and do your services, uh, they can only do so because they can sort of get away with promising that you'll get a higher level or better class of of service. Uh, but that's really all they got, right, as far as uh, why people might go to a St. Hill to do the same services they could do more cheaply. The pricing goes up as you go up these organizational ladder. So, um, but they would do it anyway. And for many, many, many years, St. Hill kind of dominated. ASHO, the American St. Hill organization there, kind of dominated and uh, overshadowed the LA org and was ripping off a lot of their public. And then the LA org became a Sea Org org, and then they kind of flipped the script. And they started getting everybody coming to them and ASHO kind of died. And AO, without the flow of new people coming up the line to do the OT levels, uh, you know, they are suffering, right? So the idea was that these orgs would be able to coordinate amongst themselves and there would be a coordination meeting. And the captains of the organizations could work together as to which public were going to be serviced by who and how this was all going to work. And it was going to be this big team thing. And that never, ever really manifested. There'd be little pushes, little attempts to make that happen. But really, the inner org competition and the stress and anxiety created over the statistics and the need to have your statistics up, and it doesn't matter about anybody else's statistics, uh, kind of that competition kind of kind of ruined the whole thing, right? It undercut the entire effort. And there never really has, really, in the entire time that that whole pack base theory has existed it never really worked out. Scientology's other management uh, mechanisms, you could say, or, or you know, the other things they do prevent that kind of teammanship and kind of you know working together and that kind of thing. They they never could pull that off. And so at the end of the day, each org was screwing each other over, right? And there was a lot of resentment and contention over that and a lot of anger over the years, right? These orgs did not really get along very well. They did not play nice together. And so Hubbard's intention really never did manifest. And so Miscavige coming along and sort of reorganizing the whole thing, of course, just made it worse. Rather than actually put in that 
L. Ron Hubbard intention and make it very clear which org is delivering which services and really streamlining the whole thing and making it all work. They just instead just kind of threw it all into the wastebasket, and it's kind of every man for himself now. And so um, so that's what's been happening there. And that's why, though, you see those two organizations, the St. Hill and the AO, separated in Los Angeles, whereas everywhere else in the world, they've combined those organizations. And in Australia, in Copenhagen, and... Um, where else? Oh, yeah, in uh, the UK, in the United Kingdom, and also down now in um, Africa, they have these St. Hill slash advanced organizations, and they're all housed in one building. So that's a little history for you and a little data about how Miscavige has kind of mangled it and made it even worse and uh, and why that whole thing exists that way. So I hope hope all that made sense. It definitely relied on you knowing a lot of things coming into that, but um, but I hope that clarified. Alex C. Can you take us through a typical day working in the Continental Liaison Office? What time would you wake up? When would you take your breaks? What time would you go to sleep? And what activities would take place during the day? All right. So when I first joined the Sea Org in 1995, I went on to a job in what's called the Continental Liaison Office. Now, I've done a whole video breaking down the management structure of Scientology. And like with my last answer, I kind of have to refer you to another video if you really want to get the structural breakdown in the hierarchy of Scientology organizations. And it's kind of important to know that and if you really want to get all the lingo and understand how things work in the Scientology religion, right, and the structure of it. Although we really should say the Scientology scam uh, because this whole structure is, of course, not really... It's, it's there and it exists and it's followed, but the command, the, the guy in charge, Miscavige, he doesn't care about any of that. He bypasses it, you know, whenever he wants. And the whole structure is uh, easily imploded by that kind of behavior. So... The Continental Liaison Office is a basically a middle management office or organization. It exists between the lower level service organizations and international management. You have this continental level management. And so that's where I worked uh, for the management overseeing all of Scientology's activities, delivery, etc. in the Western United States. That was the continental zone that I worked in. And, uh, and of course, this was an organization that was housed in the basement of one of the buildings in the PAC base. Uh, all the, the big blue buildings. So um, I specifically, this the CLO or Continental Liaison Office is kind of an umbrella organization that has within it about seven or eight different different organizations and organ and and uh, management of the Scientology churches is one of those sub organizations and that was that you're not going to get tested on any of this. I'm just throwing this out there to give you guys kind of the idea of what it what it's all about. Uh, I worked in the Flag Operations Liaison Office, or the FOLO, 
And that basically just meant, well, it was church management, which is different from managing the narconons or the criminons or the applied scholastics groups or the wise groups, the business groups. Those are all other activities that Scientology engages in, all of their front groups. And that has a separate management unit for those organizations or those subunits. So they were also housed within the CLO. And we could coordinate between each other and stuff. But generally speaking, it was kind of siloed. Org management is org management. And the missions are a whole different thing. And the narconons are a whole different thing. And they're kind of siloed between each other. So, you know, we would talk to and see each other. But we really wouldn't uh, get into each other's business too much. So as as being somebody who worked in org management or church management, My job was to oversee the delivery of Scientology across the Western United States uh, in the various Scientology churches. So like the Denver org here in Denver or the Seattle organization or the Portland organization, they all deliver Dianetics and Scientology services and they keep track of their statistics and they report those every week. Well, we were the guys in the FOLO who they were reporting that to. And our job was to get them to get those stats up no matter what it took, uh, and we were supposed to follow L. Ron Hubbard's advices and policy and direction in order to get these organizations to do what they were supposed to do so that they would expand. And it all sounds very, very, you know, uh, sensible and logical until you try to work in that system and you, and you find all the arbitrary nonsense and the yelling and screaming and stress and artificial emergencies that were created on a regular basis. And, um, and those emergencies would rationalize or justify abusive behavior and, and staying up all night for, you know, days or even weeks on end and a lot of other nonsense, right? There were times where, you know, I'd swear there would be a week or two that would go by where I wouldn't even see the sun, you know, I would kind of, kind of show up in the morning in the basement of the FOLO and do my work and not leave until midnight and go home across the street and then come back the next morning and, you know, so then daylight I was seeing was about five minutes of it, right? Um, so what was my schedule? Well, I, I don't remember exactly at this point, but and it did change from time to time, but in terms of the exact specific times, but generally speaking, by about 8.30, uh, maybe 8, 8.30, we were having a muster, right? You were expected to come. You get up in the morning, whatever time you get up, and you go have breakfast and take a shower and get yourself in uniform and, and, and show up at muster. And maybe that's 8.30, 8.45, you know, and uh, everybody gets accounted for uh, in the muster, right? You, you line up by division or area. So the FOLO would have one line and it would be like, you know, eight or nine of us. And then you'd have the estates guys who were next to us. And that was about, you know, 30 people. And then you had the treasury area and that was like two people. And, you know, all these different divisions of the CLO. We all mustered up and we would get announcements from the CEO, the commanding officer, and we would be told what's what. And maybe given targets or quotas or whatever for, you know, big generalized things. And then we would get sent off. And generally speaking, mornings was study time. Uh, and, and this would change constantly. But generally speaking, you know, you were supposed to go off in the morning after breakfast and have two and a half hours of study time. So you'd go report to the class, the course room either, I don't know if it was 9, 9.30. And you'd study until noon. Uh, noon uh, or 11.45, noon, 12.30, it would depend because every organization on that base 
and you had about eight or nine different organizations on in in pack would need to eat in the same area and they couldn't all go there all at once so there had to be a staggered schedule so the clo would generally eat i think after the um rest of the service organizations because the service org guys would have to eat from noon to one they'd have to slot that in there so maybe asho i think the asho guys had like noon to 12 30 and the ao guys had like 12 30 to one and then we might come in for lunch at one it was some, something like that because uh, we all had half an hour for lunch and half an hour for dinner so then we would uh go to lunch and then muster up again account for everybody again get a, get your okay now now we're really starting the day now we're starting the production day so the co might brief more detail about what's going on or current orders or priorities and then we would be sent off to get going and um and then we would go across the street going down to the basement and get to work and of course right away there'd be a meeting there were lots and lots of meetings and the first meeting held every day and this was not just for us this is pretty much across the scientology universe was called the product conference or uh yeah product conference and what you would do is everybody would kind of in the FOLO we would meet and every individual in the FOLO would tell the commanding officer of the FOLO what their plan was for the day what they were doing you know what their quotas were uh numerically that kind of thing and we would have this product conference then after that we generally you get the meeting you get your quotas from your direct senior you're like okay i'm all good to go nope you don't get to get to work yet because now we have to go to what's called ncc or network coordination committee and ncc isn't something i've talked about a lot but ncc was a daily meeting that was held by very that was chaired by very senior people and for a long time chaired by somebody directly from rtc to which is david miscavige's organization so we were and we were then go to this ncc meeting which really had the very simple purpose of coordinating the management structure and orders that were going out so that management terminals but people from one unit and another weren't stepping on each other's toes or cross-ordering one another or telling you know various people in the scientology world that they were ordering around you know to to do one thing and then another person say to do another thing and that's very confusing right you don't want to do that so ncc was designed to prevent that kind of thing and coordinate everybody's efforts but what it became instead in reality was just a reason uh, for the senior senior people in Scientology who oversaw all of our activities to rip our faces, you know, yell and scream at us and tell us how scummy and awful and irresponsible we were, which was a constant refrain there. There was very little positive reinforcement and an awful lot of negative reinforcement. We would end up going after after a couple months of this. It really, I really tuned into a sort of paranoid fear and terror of these meetings because you never knew going up there who was going to end up being on the hot seat for what. Uh, I'll tell you an example. One of the most uh, one of the most stressful for me was one time I was up at this meeting and I was overseeing the delivery of all of the churches in the West U.S. So all the auditing delivery and the course room delivery was kind of on me. And so, uh, of course, 
in order to get delivery going and expand it and make it bigger and more, you need more people. You need more personnel. Well, some orgs, some of the Scientology churches out in the West U.S. didn't even have an auditor on post. They couldn't deliver any auditing because there was no auditor. This is kind of a big deal, right? It's kind of a problem for Scientology if they can't deliver any auditing. Well, this was a constant problem, and trying to make an auditor or recruit an auditor in an org that doesn't have any, and the field around it, you know, they're not making any auditors, and so there's really nobody there, or there's a few people around, but they're ex-Sea Org, or they're ex-staff, and they don't want to come on staff, right? And so this was a constant problem. Um, and so one day, this came up in the meeting. Uh, that there were orgs that did not have any auditors. And the RTC guy, who was, who was uh, you know, sort of chairing the meeting, looks up and goes, what? You have orgs with no, what the fuck? You got orgs with no auditors? What the hell are you talking about, right? And suddenly, all eyes are on me, right? And I'm the evil, horrible, bad guy because I'm tolerating orgs that don't have any auditors. Well, I've been, you know, at this point in time, by the time this was happening, I was working for years trying to get these auditors, right? It's not as easy as it sounds to just recruit an auditor, right? And especially in a place like Hawaii or Albuquerque where there's, you know, these there's like 20 Scientologists showing up, every, you know, on a, that's about it. That's all you got. So it was, it was really, really, really hard. And so he looks at me and he goes, you got a week. I want an auditor on every post, on every, every org is to have an auditor and you got seven days. And needless to say, I didn't get that pulled off, right? I mean, if I wasn't going to get it done in two years, I sure as hell wasn't going to get it done in seven days. I didn't have any, you know, magic RTC pixie dust that I was going to sprinkle over my orders that was going to suddenly get them complied with. I was ordering people around who had no idea how to recruit people or how to train auditors or how to get this stuff done. And so it was just this big kind of barrier is a real big problem. So suddenly I'm on the hot seat, right? And I've got people showing up at my desk every five minutes interfering with me, asking me, okay, where are the auditors? What's the plan? What are you going to do? Let's go, go, go. Let's get some auditors. And I'm like, you know, what the hell? Anyway, needless to say, my life was a little stressful at that point. And, um, and, and I really want to stress to you that this is not just some kind of corporate environment. This is more like, this is a cult. So people feel very, very free with their, you know, very liberal with their insults. And, their, and when they hold power and authority over you, they are not bashful about uh, abusing you with it. And so I had, uh, you know, any number of people over the years through these NCC meetings uh, feeling fully justified and, you know, and just destroying me every time they saw me because I was such an irresponsible manager and couldn't get the job done, right? This kind of crap. Um, now, this was, you know, a fairly constant refrain. I did get the job done and I did get an awful lot accomplished. And then I think it was eight or nine years that I worked in management. But, you know, you never had any laurels to rest on in the Sea Org. There was never any rest or breaks or good job, attaboy, you're, you're doing great, you know. That, that kind of thing would just never really last. So um, anyway, so getting back to the day-to-day -day of, of being in that place, that, that was NCC. And that happened every day right after product conference. And the, and the awfulness of that was that you could get your marching orders from your direct senior at the product conference and be all have your day all set up, have a whole to-do list written out, and be ready to go and go to NCC 
everything changes just like that because more senior people are giving you more senior orders than your direct senior. And he has to sit there and go, well, okay. And so this is what I mean by that constant bypass that was going on of the command lines. This was a daily thing. So, you know, maybe there are places, you know, in the, in the rest of the world where this kind of thing is, is par for the course and routine. But, um, but this is very, very bad, horrible way to run any organization or business, right? Is, you know, orders and then cross orders immediately after. And then you could then go from NCC, right, where we get our marching orders again and we all go downstairs and get to work or do whatever it is we're supposed to be doing. And generally speaking, you'd have the rest of the afternoon. There were no break times, but you would have dinner. And I think dinner for us was six-ish, maybe. I think it was around six. We would go to dinner, have a half hour for dinner, right? Go across the street over the mess and then have another muster. Everybody lines up, right? And then off we go again and you work from after muster, 6.30, 6.45, get over to work. And then you're working schedule-wise until I think it was around 11.15. And then you had uh, like 15 minutes for cleaning stations. You're supposed to kind of clean up your area, wrap it all up. And then 11.30, I think it was, was schedule-wise is when we got to uh, get off post. And then you could go hang out a little bit, right, over in the mess or take a walk around the block, hang out with, you know, if you had some friends to chill with or something or your significant other. And that's where you might have, you know, some time to do that before you go to sleep and you go to bed and you get up the next day and you do it all over again. So um, I think that was generally speaking um, the the usual schedule. But of course, that 1115 cutoff time was completely optional, right? I mean, often uh, we were there much later than that because of the orders and demands that were being put on us either from NCC or from our seniors or in addition to this, I was also getting telexes uh, from senior, senior people who also were issuing me orders on what to do. So at any one time, I had, from the time I got into management until the day I left management, when I finally got out of there, uh, like I said, this is about the first eight or nine years of my Sea Org experience, 95 to 2003, I think it was. Um I had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven people routinely walking into my area. I didn't have an individual office. I had an office which I shared with another person. Walk into my office and issue orders and demands on me that I was ordered to comply with, right? Sometimes immediately, sometimes, you know, take a day or two or whatever. But uh, about seven different people could come in at any one time and order me around. Uh, And that alone is a little crazy making. When they're doing it with threats and intimidation and violence, it's beyond stressful. It's crazy making. And, uh, and that was my life for, for those first eight or nine years in the Sea Org. So, yeah, let's see. Um, in terms of activities that would take place during the day, besides those crazy meetings, um, Monday nights was base briefing. So we would go, I think, around 9 o'clock or something. We would go 9.30. We'd, we'd all, uh, the entire base. Yeah, I think it was 9. 
No, 10 o'clock, because it had to be after service hours. So all the course rooms and everything wrapped up at 10 o'clock. So base briefing would be like at 10.15, the entire base would muster up. And that's where every week the um, captains could brief the crew as a whole on what was going on on the base, you know, where the statistics were, uh, what the priorities were, that kind of thing. So that was kind of a base-wide thing. And Saturday nights were... Um, Generally, either um, there might be base briefings or there might be org awards if we happen to have stellar statistics and there happened to be some kind of an award. Uh, and this was infrequent, right? Because often if the org's statistics overall weren't doing good, even if your statistics, my statistics were great, straight up and vertical, baby, if the whole org wasn't, too fucking bad. You're not getting org awards, right? You don't get any time off. So there was a little bit of that going on too. Uh, but generally speaking, if there were going to be org awards, that would be Saturday night. Uh, Sunday mornings, uh, we would wake up and not muster. We would muster up, but we wouldn't have to be in uniform. And Sunday mornings, uh, generally until around, I think, 1230 or so, was what was called CSP time or clean ship program. And this was uh, base cleaning, basically. This is where everybody cleans their rooms, their own individual living rooms, uh, whether it's a dorm or if you were married, then you had an, a little you know, room to yourself. And there would be inspections. The security officers would come around and inspect the rooms, and you couldn't go off. You had to clean your room, clean the hallways, clean the bathrooms. All the common areas had to get covered, too. And then once the floor as a whole was given uh, okay, all the rooms had been inspected and passed, then you could leave the base to go get your toiletries and snacks or anything like that if you were going to go over to the grocery store, which a lot of people did. Because if you needed new socks or underwear or toiletries or you know uh, hygiene products or something – that was the time to go do it. You couldn't go off on Wednesday afternoon and walk over to the grocery store. You couldn't go off after post, after 1130. You couldn't go walking off the base. That was absolutely verboten. So we were pretty stuck on that base most of the time. But Sunday mornings, if you'd passed your room inspection, that's when you had authorization to go off and, and, uh, and do, some, do a little grocery shopping or stuff like that. And uh, then we would muster up again uh, after lunch and uh, um, do a regular work day on Sundays. Uh, Sunday was also the day where if you were going to have a day off, Sunday was going to be the day. That was Liberty's Day or Lib's Day. And so if your own individual statistics were up, even if the overall org situation was bad, you could still possibly theoretically get a day off if your senior approved it, right? And that required your job to be covered. Somebody had to either be covering your job or everything had to be totally under control so that when you went off, everything was fine and they had to be able to have a way to reach you. So if you had a beeper or cell phone or something, some kind of access, if you were going to go see your parents or have a day off with them, had to have a phone number where they could reach you at any moment, because if you got had to be called back to the base, you were coming back. And I remember one day I got um, I got a, a Sunday off, and I went up to Santa Barbara. I actually got like I'm taking a day off. I'm I'm going up to sunny Santa Barbara, and I got there, and within a half hour of arriving, ringy ringy ringy, we have an emergency. You got to come back, dude. I got an approved day off. I don't care. You're coming back. 
get going, right? And so I get in the car and come back. And I get back around 3.30. Everybody's working as usual. There was no emergency. There was no emergency. What happened was my senior, my commanding officer, was was uh, told somebody I had the day off. And they said, oh, really? Shelton deserves a day off? Okay. That was it. He called me back. Right? Just because of that comment. So that was kind of how life was in the Sea Org. Right? Uh, yeah. And that's, uh, I don't know, that's about the most thorough answer I've ever given on that. So thanks for asking, Alex. Barney Saunders. I know that you never formally practiced independent Scientology, but was there a short period of even just a few weeks or days or maybe a few hours where you still believed in the teachings of Scientology and Hubbard, even though you had exited the organization that is the Church of Scientology? And what was it exactly about your situation that helped you avoid going through the transition phase of independent Scientology that so many other former Scientologists had to go through? Barney, these are great questions. Thanks for asking about this. Um, okay, so in terms of, um, I, you know, no, I didn't have any transition period. I went boom, boom, right? I went from... I wanted to go up the bridge. I wanted to be a Scientologist. I left the Sea Org, but I still had this belief in the technology. I had long since lost faith in the organization and Miscavige. I knew, because I'd been working for the Sea Org for 17 years, and I'd been a staff member for eight years before that, I knew, I'd seen behind the curtain, I knew all the dirty nonsense that goes on organizationally. And I didn't like it. And I didn't like the way we were treated and abused and, and, and you know, that kind of thing. So I wanted out of that. But I still believed in Scientology. And this was 2000, this was the end of 2012 that I finally got out of the Sea Org. So I fully intended to continue practicing Scientology. However, there were a few things uh, to answer, to, to address your question here as to this, you know, why no transition phase for me. There were things that happened that did plant real big seeds of doubt in my mind about the workability of Scientology, uh, the tech of Scientology. And, and when I was on the RPF, you know, I started being able to generate what's called a floating needle, right? You could kind of force it. And it didn't always work, but it worked often enough and I realized also after doing that entire RPF program and then doing my sec check when I was leaving that I could get away with not saying stuff. That even questions could read or respond like, you know, did you uh, have uh, sexual intercourse with that woman, right? Did you have, did you cheat on your wife? I mean, I was asked questions like this uh, because they suspected that I had and I had. And I was hiding that because I was trying to protect the woman who I had uh, had an affair with. And I didn't want her getting in trouble. I didn't really care at that point about me. I'd been through an RPF. I was leaving the Sea Org. There, were, there weren't a lot of consequences I was too concerned about for myself. But I did know that I would have all kinds of trouble and possibly get declared if I confessed to that affair. And I knew, more importantly, that she would get in a lot of trouble, though. And I was way more worried about her than I was about me. So I kept it to myself. I did not confess to any of that. 
And this was, again, when I was leaving the Sea Org. So when I got through that sec check, I kind of knew how to get sec checked. And so I kind of forced those FNs, those floating needles, which is what you need in order to get through the sec check because they won't get off a question. They won't stop asking you until the needle is doing this floating thing when they ask you the question, right? And so I learned how to do that. And, um, and of course, in retrospect, I don't have any guilt about that because the e-meter is a piece of bullshit, right? It doesn't work, and it's not doing what they say it's doing. So, you know, me forcing reactions or responses to it, you know, it wasn't any big crime. But when I was in the Scientology headspace, it kind of was. And so I was a little concerned about that. And I was concerned about the fact that I could get away with it. And I thought, wow, that's really something. Uh, both on the RPF and off, right? And I was being sec-checked by highly trained auditors. I was not being, on the RPF, you're being sec by by somebody who just learned. But in the leaving sec-check, I got uh, sec-checked by a class nine auditor, somebody who'd been around for decades in Scientology. And she was a great woman. She was really nice. But, you know, the e-meter doesn't work. So I was able to get out of answering those questions. And, um that planted some seeds in me of, hmm, hmm, what about that, you know? I didn't really have it all figured out yet. I didn't think the e-meter didn't work. I wasn't really thinking in those terms yet, but I was just, huh, how am I able to do this? This is interesting. I shouldn't be able to. I shouldn't be able to get away with this, but I could. And, of course, there were other things about the tech over the years. I mean, I was very, very trained. I was very, very into learning about L. Ron Hubbard's technology. And that, that fascinated me. And I thought, you know, when I was a Scientologist, I thought all the answers were there. And I just needed to dig them up and find them. Well, you know, they weren't all there. But that's what I thought. So once I did get out of the Sea Org and got, you know, ran that whole gauntlet, and then I got on the internet. It was a gradual thing. It took a couple months. But bit by bit, piece by piece, I was seeing failure after failure after failure of Scientology to resolve situations. I was reading stories and narratives from very upset former Scientologists who had been wronged, and not just organizationally, but technically as well. They had... Um, been been brutalized by auditing. They had been abused up one side and down the other by Scientology technical procedures, not just miscavige beating on people or seniors yelling and screaming, but actual psychosis-inducing episodes, right? And Lisa McPherson, learning about that whole story was really eye-opening because I had never seen or heard of an introspection rundown ever being done or any part of it being done. And once I learned about the Lisa McPherson debacle and the whole tragedy of that, that was very eye-opening to me as far as, you know, just how damaging and psychosis-inducing Scientology procedures could be. And, of course, Lisa McPherson is far from the only case study of that. There are tons of examples and lots and lots of testimonials from people who were former Scientologists all over the Internet. There's literally thousands of them 
of people who uh, you could say were dissatisfied customers. So reading all of that in a very short, concentrated period of time, as well as learning that, that with beyond any shadow of a doubt that L. Ron Hubbard was a pathological liar. I mean, he, he, he lied like he breathes, like Trump. He just, he just lies. It just comes out. He doesn't even have to think about it. Just lie after lie after lie after lie. You know, the, 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 the value of words and truth means nothing to malignant narcissists. They are just sounds that manipulate you. They get you to act in certain ways. So these are the sounds I have to make. You know, that's kind of the attitude with, with narcissists and, and very much with L. Ron Hubbard. He would say whatever he needed to in order to get people to do what he wanted them to do. And if they didn't comply, he then got vicious and mean and abusive and, and very abusive with his wives and with his children, by the way. And I was just floored by this. I, this was a whole new side of L. Ron Hubbard I'd never seen or heard of before. And as well as the war records and the school records and so much other information that I was suddenly being exposed to that made it crystal clear, crystal clear, that I couldn't believe a word this man said. Not a word. There was nothing L. Ron Hubbard could say that I could take at face value. And once that came home to me, all of Scientology suddenly was like, wait a second, I got to question all of this. None of this is legit, right? Unless I can find evidence that shows it's legit, no way. Now, for a long time, I was still thinking anecdotally too. So it's no, so it wasn't like a total light switch moment. I mean, there were some. There was a transition period there where I was still struggling with my own anecdotal experiences of Scientology and trying to make that make sense. And there, and it took a couple years before I hit on John Atac and Yuval Leor and their and their uh, research and discussions on euphoria and. And, you know, the neuroscience of it and how, what, you know, what is falling in love? What is awe? What is euphoria? How, do, how does that affect not only in terms of brain chemistry, but emotions? And how does that affect our beliefs and our ideas? And, you know, and these things are, are, are major influencers for how we look at the world and think about things. But it took me a few years to learn about all that. I didn't know any of that. And so when I... Um, went down this internet rabbit hole, all I could really cling to and hold on to as something that was very, very obviously true for me now was L. Ron Hubbard's a liar. And I can't believe a word he says. So from that, so that was kind of the thing that set me off as why I didn't go into the independent route is because I didn't still hold on to this, you know, this passionate belief that the tech must be true because I had wins, you know, and that tends to be the attitude of independent Scientologists is they are so desperate for solutions and wins and that euphoric experience that they continue to delude and kid themselves about the workability of Scientology. And they don't understand that whole euphoria process and what that does to you. And they don't understand framing and, and critical thinking. They just don't. They don't get it. So they continue to delude themselves about these beliefs. I didn't. I didn't. Right. And of course, um, you know, after realizing Hubbard was a liar, 
I, you know, hadn't yet hit on critical thinking, but I knew it's dangerous for me to keep thinking this way. So I need to change that. And I was really floundering. I mean, really floundering around. This, the, I'm, I'm describing it in such a way that it might sound like it was a lot more sensible or rational than it was. It took months to sort this out. This was all. This was my life during 2013, right? It was just a year of, of insanity for me. So I was on the phone with my mom and my dad and, and mostly them, really, mostly my mom just trying to sort this stuff out and figure it out and kind of break it down and, you know, verify with them that the OT levels really did say what I was reading. I mean, I, I downloaded the OT levels and I was like, what is this? That It just didn't make any sense. You know, body thetans and, and what? This is crazy. This isn't what, no. You know, I just totally rejected it, just completely. I just thought this was nonsense. So I, there wasn't really anything in the tech that was strong enough or or that I was, you know, that I was like, had to have, that had to be true, that I was still holding on to. And that's how I was able to kind of give it up. I don't think I'm anybody special. I just, that was my attitude about it is, Elwin Hubbard's a liar. I can't believe him. So screw all this, you know? And then I had to sort out, well, what is true and what's not? And how do we, you know, and that's when I dived into the subjects of psychiatry and, the LGBT community and what you know what Hubbard said versus the reality of it and I and I quickly saw that all of his nonsense was really really bad uh, really hate-filled kind of incendiary stuff you know that Hubbard was saying that I bought into when I was a Scientologist and now I was reevaluating and going oh yeah no he was dead wrong about everything he said about the LGBTQ community is just totally wrong and everything, you know, not, not everything he said about psychiatry is wrong, but his emphasis and priorities are all wrong, totally wrong, right? And, and Hubbard's view about all of that was just, was, was just 180 degrees backwards. So, um, so it was easy to kind of, you know, start, start shifting, sifting through that. And, and then it was just onion layers as we've gone over for years, you know, you just sifting off, you know, peeling off the onion layers of belief. And that's been my journey, right, through this whole channel. So, um, so that's, I guess, how I uh, transitioned and avoided the independent Scientology phase that, you know, it seems like a lot of people experience. And there you go. Steve Wood. Has any Scientologist ever asked why Hubbard did not apply the incredible potential benefits he promised by practicing Scientology in his own life? Let's be honest, his life became so completely disastrous by the time he died, and I believe every one of his issues were totally solvable according to his writings, but he did not use Scientology to save himself. All right, Steve, uh, thanks for asking about this. Now, I have already explained in detail numerous times uh, the delusional belief set and headspace of Scientologists, so I'm not going to do that again. Uh, I'm going to give you a very short and to-the-point answer on this one, and that is that, yes, there are Scientologists who asked why Hubbard did not apply the incredible potential benefits he promised in practicing Scientology. And I would say, at this point sitting here, that the Scientologists who asked those questions are no longer Scientologists, right? Those are the kind of questions people start asking when they start go, uh, getting on the road out of Scientology,
So yes, that has happened, but um, no, Scientologists who are who remain loyal and in the church and stay practicing Scientologists do not ask such questions, do not wonder about such things. And if that question were posed to them, they would wonder what the hell's wrong with you because they believe the narrative and the history of L. Ron Hubbard's life according to the way L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology tells the story. And according to their version of events, L. Ron Hubbard's life was nothing but a glorious series of incredibly fortunate events that uh, L. Ron Hubbard was completely in charge of the entire time because he was on a mission to save the world and help everybody, which was the exact opposite of the truth, right? But that's what the story, the hagiography, if you will, that is the formal academic term for the life story or biography of a religious leader. And Scientology has a hagiography for L. Ron Hubbard. And it's their official version of of L. Ron Hubbard's life. And it is nothing but a pack of lies from one end to the other. There is so, there are so many things left out. There are so many lies, just straight up blatant lies told in that hagiography that Scientologists, but Scientologists accept it because they don't have another version of the events or another version of that story. And once you start getting the other version of that story, the truth about it, once you look at his war records, you look at his university records, you look at the, the timeline of his life, you find out he was married to two women. He was a bigamist, you know. He was married to two women at the same time for a year. Didn't tell either wife about the other one until he had to. Stuff like that, right? And you, um, that's, that's the life story we know. That's not the life story Scientologists know. And, I, you know, and that seems kind of, you know, like an obvious point. So I, I'm, I'm just saying that, um, you know, in, in answering this question here, like, it, you know, Scientologists don't question this because they've already got what they think are the answers, and they think L. Ron Hubbard died gloriously, causatively, that he didn't die, he dropped his body. They don't know that he was filled with drugs and died in a ditch, basically, a ruined, broken man who was quite honestly pretty insane. They don't know that. And they don't let themselves know that. And, you know, and that's something I've talked about at length before. So, Anyway, that's the answer to the question, Steve. So thanks for asking, and um, I hope that answer satisfies. Gur Roar. I understand Scientology has a few publications in print and digital, Freedom, Celebrity Magazine, that are loaded with propaganda, misinformation, and lies. Can you recall any memorable stories of wins slash gains or just anything that made you go, what the heck, that's not right? Or any that you were just like, that's total and complete bullshit, even while in Scientology. Absolutely, of course. Um, and, and most Scientologists do, you know, because everybody's there on their own, for their own purposes and from their own point of view. And so we all had points of incredulity or, you know, points of, yeah, I can't just, I, I just can't accept that, right? Um for me, it was, you know, stories about telepathy and, you know, mind reading and 
uh, future predictions and, you know, moving clouds around with your mind and stuff like that. I never really totally believed that people were really doing that. Um, but, you know, the funny thing was that we, you know, in Scientology, I was so desperate for validation or confirmation of these supernatural OT abilities that every, you know, month that the, um, uh, the advanced mag, which is the advanced organizations magazine, they have a section called OT phenomena where they get testimonials from people who have, are doing their OT levels or are OT about OT phenomena, things they do or ran across or encountered that indicated that they were on some higher supernatural sort of ability plane of existence. And I was routinely disappointed by these stories being mostly, I changed the traffic light, I found my keys, I, I got the job, you know, these sort of coincidental things that you're like, Really? This is how you're sort of thinking about OT phenomena? Like, it was a little, like, I, I wanted to believe. I desperately wanted to believe. So I would believe these stories, but, and, you know, but at the same time, I was like, eh, this is not really anything special. There's nothing really cool or amazing or unbelievable going on here. And I just didn't really, you know, I was very frustrated by that because I thought OT was all about real superpowers and nobody was manifesting any real superpowers. You know, the most you'd ever get would be coincidences or, you know, opportunities that people would, would come across people's plates that they would assign you know, oh, well, that opportunity appeared because I had my flows open, because I was OT, because I made a very strong postulate, you know, these Scientology mantras that they use. So, um, so you know, I was always kind of a little on the fence on that stuff. Um, but boy, would I get into it. You know, I really wanted to believe so bad that, I, you know, every OT I met, What's it like to be OT? Tell me all about it, you know. You know. <sighs> anyway, uh, so sure, yeah, that happened a lot of times to me, but I stayed a true believer because, you know, all the reasons that we do. Okay, guys, so that is our show for this week. I hope you I hope these answers were informative, entertaining, and educational. And I hope you're enjoying my channel and that you are subscribed. And uh, of course, again, click that notifications bell as well so you uh, find out when I post new content. I will again encourage you to check out my Critical Clips channel. And of course, I will also encourage you to please check out all the links in the description uh, section of this video because that is where the links are to support this channel and also to my book on Amazon as well as my Critical Clips channel. And of course, let's not forget about the Sensibly Speaking podcast as well. Lots and lots of content for you guys. I hope you enjoy it and I hope you will uh, support the channel to help me keep it coming. All right, guys. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.